should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where we keep you in the know. You can find the Commonwealth Club, as you know, online at commonwealthclub.org. And I am Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club. I'm going to moderate today's program with great pleasure. Homeland security is a topic about which public and media attention rises and falls depending upon whether there have been recent incidents of terrorism or relative quiet when it comes to threats to the U.S. or our friends and allies. Today, thankfully, we are in a period of relative calm in the United States without recent major incidents. But the just past 14th anniversary of 9-11 is a grim reminder of how threats to our security may lurk just before, below the surface for years before they become dramatic dangers. The establishment of the Director of Homeland Security position right after 9-11, and then the integration of 22 federal departments to create the Department of Homeland Security, and the elevation of its leader to a cabinet post in 2003, are steps that have been taken to more preventatively address threats to U.S. security before they become deadly. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce the Honorable Jay Johnson, United States Secretary of Homeland Security. A distinguished civil and criminal attorney, Secretary Johnson was nominated by President Obama and then confirmed by the U.S. Senate in December of 2013. In his role at DHS, he has dealt with issues as varied as cybersecurity, terrorism, illegal immigration, and ensuring civil rights as we protect our security. Secretary Johnson graduated from Morehouse College and took his law degree at Columbia University. In addition to practicing law, he has served in a number of public service capacities. He was general counsel of the Department of Defense from 2009 to 2012. 
and under President Clinton, he was the general counsel of the U.S. Air Force. Long committed to civil rights, Secretary Johnson co-chaired a task force at the Department of Defense in 2012 that paved the way for repeal of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished guest today, Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. Thank you very much. Thank you um, for the invitation to speak before this distinguished organization. It's nice to be here in San Francisco. Um, I thought I would just give a few minutes opening remarks and then look forward to your questions. You heard that the Department of Homeland Security includes 22 components. That is true. Um, there are so many components that anytime I talk about DHS in any comprehensive way, I need, a, I need a pad. You can see I write my own speeches. I need a pad um, to list all the different things that we are doing all under the umbrella of Homeland Security. Um, it's Heather Fong here. Where is, where is Heather Fong? Uh, I don't see her. Where are you, Heather? Um, one of the things I wanted to do to curry favor in this San Francisco audience uh, is to uh, give a shout out to my assistant secretary for law enforcement, Heather Fong, who is the former police chief of San Francisco. She's been with us for about a year doing great work. Um, let, me, um, let, me, let me pick up on something um, that you said. Um, we're in a period of relative calm. Every time I hear that, I'm reminded that given the nature of Homeland Security, no news is good news, but no news is often because somebody somewhere in Homeland Security or law enforcement or national security did something to interdict the plot, to prevent somebody from getting on an airplane, to interdict a shipment somewhere um, that you don't hear about or read about, or you might if you got to page A16. And so while we are in a period of relative calm, we are very busy maintaining relative calm. We are 22 components. We are a department at the cabinet level of 240,000 people, depending on how you count. We have a total spending authority of about $60 billion. Our missions in the Department of Homeland Security include counterterrorism, border security, aviation security, port security, maritime security, cybersecurity, detection of nuclear, chemical, biological threats to the homeland, protection of our national leaders through the Secret Service, training of federal law enforcement officers, enforcement and administration of our immigration laws and policies and responses to disasters, including natural disasters. We include among those 22 components, Customs and Border Protection, which itself is the largest federal law enforcement agency, Immigration's Customs Enforcement, Citizenship and Immigration Services, TSA, the Coast Guard, the Secret Service, and FEMA. Now, before I get into the issues, let me first say that 
Yesterday, I paid a visit to our FEMA Regional Watch Center in downtown Oakland to get an update on the situation with the wildfires a little bit north of here um, in uh, Butte and the Valley Fire. In the Valley section, some 62,000 acres were destroyed in just 17 hours. Um, as we speak, at least 4,000 firefighters are devoted to the Butte fire and another 1,200 or so, and that number's probably growing, are devoted to the Valley Fire. Uh, a number of people have been displaced, their homes destroyed. Um, within the federal government, we have issued a fire management assistance grant declaration for each of those fires, which means that the federal government, my department, is matching the cost of firefighting and assistance at a 75% level um, for firefighters, for, for relief efforts, and so forth. And what's happening right now is a real tribute to the bravery and dedication of our, our firefighter community. Counterterrorism, in my view, as a New Yorker who was present in Manhattan on 9-11, should remain the cornerstone of the department's mission, and it has remained the cornerstone of our department's mission. We have, and I've been saying this now for a while, evolved to a new phase in the global terrorist threat from only terrorist-directed attacks from overseas, where the operative is recruited, trained, equipped overseas, and exported to a place where they commit an act of terrorism to terrorist-inspired threats. Someone who could be homeborn or homegrown is simply inspired, without ever having met a terrorist leader, uh, to commit an act of violence because of something he read in social media or saw on the internet. Phase one, phase two. Phase one includes, obviously, the most prominent example, 9-11. The underwear bomber, December 25, 2009, was part of that phase one. The shoe bomber, Richard Reed. The attempted package bomb plot emanating from Yemen. The attempted Times Square bombing. These are all terrorist-directed attacks by someone who was from another part of the world. Now in the current phase, we have, in addition, the terrorist-inspired attack, including the Boston Marathon bombing. Ottawa, October 2014. Paris, Charlie Hebdo attack, January 2015. The Garland City attempted attack. Garland City, Texas, May 2015. Chattanooga, July 2015. This represents the in my judgment, new reality of where we are in the global terrorist threat. It is, for the most part, smaller scale attacks, but in many respects, harder to detect because it involves the so-called lone wolf who could strike with little or no notice here in the homeland. So what are we doing about that? A number of different things. First, there is the continued military effort. Uh, we through direct action, continue to take the fight to terrorist organizations overseas. We've obviously had some successes. 
the raid on the compound in Abbottabad, May 1st, 2011. I was general counsel of the Department of Defense then. Um, one of my best days as a public servant, the day we at the Pentagon uh, were there to oversee what was happening. We've had other high-value target successes on terrorist leaders who have been killed or captured. Our law enforcement community, most notably the FBI, continues to detect and interdict and investigate terrorist plots in the homeland. State and local law enforcement has a larger role in that. Our Federal Protective Service has enhanced its presence at federal buildings, including federal buildings here in San Francisco. That is something that I directed last fall, beginning last fall. We have enhanced aviation security at last point of departure airports with flights directly into the United States. That is something I directed a little over a year ago. We are building what we call pre-clearance capability at overseas airports with direct flights to the United States, where instead of on the back end, you will see customs officers on the front end of the flight uh, to screen passengers on the front end. We have this capability in 15 airports overseas. We are building more. With this capability, we have denied boarding to a number of individuals, including some in our terrorist screening database. So it's an important capability. I want to do more. Every opportunity to defend the homeland, excuse the sports metaphor, from the 50 versus the one yard line, I want to take. In response to the IG's report, my Inspector General's report that TSA flunked a number of tests and screening devices that was unfortunately leaked to the public earlier this summer. I directed a 10-point plan to address that specific problem. Our new TSA administrator, Admiral Pete Neppinger, is doing a terrific job in my judgment and an aggressive job to address that 10-point plan and plug that hole. Uh, it will include less managed inclusion. What does that mean for you folks? TSA is the agency of government which, which the American public deals with most. 1.8 million people a day are screened by TSA. One of the things that we will do uh, is less managed inclusion. In other words, you get out to the airport and very often you're sent to the shorter line, which is rapidly becoming the longer line, um, with the TSA pre-check passengers. Less managed inclusion uh, so that we do more screening of more people who have not been pre-screened. Um, I cannot tell you yet whether all of this means longer wait times, but we are doing a number of things to enhance aviation security pursuant to that 10-point plan. We are doing a better job of tracking the foreign fighter phenomenon. In other words, one of the new threats that we are concerned about are... We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show. People who leave their home countries, go to Iraq and Syria, to the hot spots, and then return to their homelands, radicalized. We're very concerned about that. There was a UN Security Council resolution passed about a year ago to address this. I just issued a directive that with respect to the 38 countries that are in our visa waiver program, in other words, countries for which we do not require a visa to come here, we are asking for greater security assurances, like greater use of the Interpol stolen passport database, greater use of what we refer to in Washington, we love acronyms, API and PNR, advanced passenger information or passenger name recognition data. We are asking our allies in the visa waiver program to make more use of this, as well as federal air marshals on flights to the United States. We will carefully screen Syrian refugees. You heard last week or earlier this week that we have undertaken to admit 10,000 Syrian refugees in the next fiscal year. We will carefully screen those refugees. We will accomplish that with our existing resources. We also have as a government, provided over $4 billion worth of aid, humanitarian assistance to refugees in that part of the world. We are working more closely in this new environment with state and local law enforcement. I was at a banquet last night with a whole lot of law enforcement and sheriffs in this area called the Urban Shield Program. We are working closer in my department with state and local law enforcement, intelligence uh, sharing, grants, and so forth. A fundamental part of homeland security, in my view, in this new phase, is countering violent extremism here at home. We have a program called CVE, Countering Violent Extremism. I personally go out to places like Boston, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Houston, Northern Virginia, Maryland, talking to communities, in particular Muslim communities, about helping us to deter those who may be headed in the direction of violence. We've seen some successes. In my judgment, we need to take these efforts to the next level to give the counter message a larger microphone. That's something we spend a lot of time on. Just a moment, oh, I could go, I could spend two hours on my mission. Uh, just a moment on cyber security. Uh, the greatest thing we need right now uh, is help from the other branch of government to pass cyber legislation. My hope is that Congress will take up, the Senate in particular, will take up cyber legislation in October. The House has already passed comprehensive cybersecurity legislation that greatly enhances my authorities, greatly enhances information sharing with the private sector. In my view, that is key. Um, as reflected in a statement released by the White House yesterday, or perhaps Saturday, we just completed some very frank discussions with uh, some senior Chinese officials 
who were visiting this country in advance of President Xi's visit on cybersecurity, on greater cooperation in cybersecurity. We had a frank dialogue. In fact, it was probably the most frank dialogue I've ever had in diplomacy. And I believe that it will lead to positive results uh, at or before the president's visit here in a couple of days, President of China. Um, on immigration, the subject of immigration, let me report that uh, a couple of things. First of all, I'm on a mission to state the facts about immigration, not the stereotypes, not the misimpressions about immigration. There was a Pew Research survey done two years ago. Question, do you think that more people are crossing our southern border illegally? I think I got this exactly right. Now than 10 years ago, 55% of survey respondents said there are more crossing now than there were 10 years ago. And the exact opposite is true. So I'm on a mission to put out the facts about migration and illegal migration. In fact, the high for apprehensions on our southern border was in the fiscal year 2000, 1.6 million people. And this is an indicator of total attempts to cross the border. 1.6 million people crossed our southern border and were apprehended in fiscal year 2000. With investments in border security, surveillance, personnel, more fence, that number has dramatically declined to the point where it's down around per year, 400,000, 450,000, some years less than 400,000. Last year, total, total apprehensions on the southern border were 479,000. This year, this fiscal year, which will end in 16 days, 15 days, the number will likely be around 330,000, which is a significant drop off even from last year. And only one time since 1972 has that number been lower. That is because of the investments we have made uh, in large part in, in border security. We built more fence. How many of you knew that we built more fence? Pursuant to the Secure Fence Act of 2006, we went from 77 miles of fence to 700 miles of fence that we built in the places where it makes sense to build fence. The southern border consists of the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande does this in South Texas. It's a windy river. It's one of the most winding rivers I've ever seen. Remote desert and mountains. We built fence where it makes sense to build fence. We have not built fence across the entire 1,900-mile southern border. Imagine if you built a fence on a 10,000-foot mountain. Somebody said long ago, if a migrant is motivated enough to travel from Central America through, through Mexico, climb a 10,000-foot mountain, do you really think they will be deterred by a 10-foot fence? Uh, or, as my predecessor used to say, build a 15-foot fence and I will show you a 16-foot ladder. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what the border security experts say is we need more technology, more surveillance equipment, uh, investing in a risk-based strategy toward border security. And that's what we would like to do, and that's reflected in this year's budget submission for FY16. 
Meanwhile, our enforcement policies for the interior mean that while there will be fewer deportations this year, a greater percentage of those deportations are focused on convicted criminals. So in this fiscal year, I fully expect we will see fewer deportations than last year and the year before that, but a greater percentage of those will be convicted criminals. A year ago, as part of our executive actions, I issued a new directive for who we should be deporting, convicted criminals. And I, had, I issued priorities, priority one, priority two, priority three. Priority one are the felons, the gang members, the threats to national security. Priority two are misdemeanors, those apprehended at the border or those who entered the country after January 1, 2014, those who apprehended at the border are also priority one. Right now, those in immigration detention, 96% right now under our new policies are in either priority one or priority two. 76% are in priority one. So that's the direction we want to go. Enforce the immigration laws against convicted criminals. The reality is that there are something like 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country, over half of which, I'm told, have been here 10 years or more. They are not going away. We are not going to deport a population of people equivalent in size to New York City and Chicago combined. They are not going away. We should have interior enforcement against the criminals, but we've got to reckon with this population of people. The president and I would like to offer what's called deferred action to those within this population who are not criminals, who have lived here for a period of time and who have roots and ties to this country, like what we did for the kids in 2012. That's in litigation right now in a court in Texas, and it's on appeal in the Fifth Circuit. And for those who say that we do not have the legal authority to do this without a change in the law, I say, well, change the law. We've got to reckon with this population. We shouldn't insist that they live in the shadows from a law enforcement point of view. I want to see them come out of the shadows so that we know who they are. Those who are encouraged to do so should come forward, get on the books, pay taxes, and receive a work authorization. They're not going away. Encourage them to report crime, for example. So it's a population that we, we must reckon with. As part of our greater interior enforcement against the criminals, we did away last year as part of our executive actions with the controversial Secure Communities Program. Secure Communities was a program, some of you may know, where we would put detainers on undocumented immigrants in local jails and expect local law enforcement to hand them over to us for deportation. It's a controversial program legally and politically. 14,000 detainers last fiscal, years, last fiscal year on undocumented went unresponded to because of the controversy around secure communities. Hundreds of jurisdictions were passing laws, ordinances, enacting policies that limited or basically prohibited cooperation with our immigration enforcement personnel because the Secure Communities Program was becoming so controversial. So we ended that program and we have replaced it 
with a new program, which in my view is a common sense balanced program called prior the Priority Enforcement Program, which people like Dianne Feinstein, who I have a lot of respect for, has endorsed and encouraged jurisdictions within her state to work with. It's in, endorsed by the New York Times editorial page. I don't often get the New York, New York Times editorial page to agree with me on something, but here they did. And it basically is a program that does away with detainers and replaces that with request for notification. I request that you notify me before you release a convicted criminal who is undocumented so that we can come and pick them up. So we do not ask, except where there is probable cause, that the local jail detain that person longer than they would have otherwise done so, which is what was legally controversial. So far we've had, and we're in discussions with a lot of jurisdictions about this, we've had something like 10 of the 25 biggest jurisdictions agree to work with us on this program, including Los Angeles County, and I believe that we're going to uh, reach successful arrangements with some of the largest jurisdictions and cities. As part of our executive actions, we're also promoting citizenship um, and naturalization. I just came from a naturalization uh, ceremony this morning. Naturalization ceremonies are absolutely the best part of my job uh, that I do, making people citizens. It's a wonderful uh, thing to do. Uh, we've issued a number of regulations and we're about to issue regulations to promote employment of foreign students and high-skilled workers in high-skilled, high-tech areas. We've identified a number of ways in which we can facilitate that employment within our existing legal authorities, and we are doing so. That's immigration. I could go on and on, talk about the Secret Service. The Secret Service, next week at this time, is gonna have its hands full. We're gonna have the UN General Assembly, with something like 170 world leaders, all in one borough. Imagine 170 world leaders in this city, all at once, the traffic. Uh, the Secret Service, the NYPD, the State Department handles that remarkably well. This year we're gonna have 170 some odd world leaders, plus the President of China, plus the Pope. Pope is coming to Los um, uh, New York, Washington, and Philadelphia all happening at the same time. So, uh, and the Secret Service is gonna support it all under the leadership of their new director, uh, Joe Clancy. Uh, I believe that the Secret Service is on the right path. They are implementing the things that an independent panel I appointed a year ago uh, has recommended for the Secret Service to put them on a sure footing. And I think with Joe's leadership, they are on a sure footing. <clears throat> Last thing I'll say, and then I'll sit down and take questions, is I cannot pay for and provide Homeland Security without help from Congress. Right now, sequestration is due to come back at the beginning of next calendar year, unless Congress repeals it. Sequestration was never intended to be smart budget policy. It was intended to be uh, the hammer to get Congress to do the right thing. Well, that didn't happen, and sequestration kicked in, uh, with the Murray-Ryan budget deal two years ago. Sequestration was repealed for two years, but that, that, that pumpkin is getting ready to, you know, turn into a whatever. It's get, uh, sequestration will come back unless Congress acts to repeal it. 
And if sequestration comes back, then I have to decapitate my budget. That is not smart budget policy. I cannot do the things for Homeland Security that the American public wants and needs. So Homeland Security is not free. Unfortunately, I cannot print money. So I need a, I need a, I need a partner in Congress um, to do the things that they want me to do. Congress screams at me about more this, more that, more this. I said, well, you got to pay for it, sir. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. And repeal sequestration. So that's a point I'd like to stress to to public audiences. Um, Last thing I'll say, I was at um, Shanksville, Pennsylvania last Friday on 9-11. I'd never been to Shanksville before. I'm a New Yorker. I usually spend 9-11, which happens to be my birthday, either in New York or Washington. I was in New York in 2014. Uh, I've been to the Pentagon ceremony every year because I used to work there. I'd never been to Shanksville. Shanksville is in a very remote part of Pennsylvania. It's farmland. Um, There's no interstate near Shanksville. You have to want to get to Shanksville to go to Shanksville. You don't just pass through Shanksville. And we honored um, the passengers and crew of flight United Flight 93. That was the only objective that was not reached that day by those who hijacked the planes. And the reason it didn't reach its objective was because of the civilian passengers on board, uh, 40 of them. And I met all of their families out there, and they allowed me to go with them out to the crash site, the immediate crash site where there's still some debris out there considered sacred ground. They open it up once a year. And so I was out there with the families, hearing the stories of their brothers, their, their daughter, everything they did on that plane that day. And it's remarkable. But the most remarkable thing, when they realized that it was not a hijacking, that it was a suicide mission, they had to figure out what to do. And they did the most American of things. They took a vote on what to do, and they voted to take back the plane. And as a result of their actions, which cost their lives, hundreds or not thousands of lives were, were saved on 9-11. Uh, it was a remarkable act of, of heroism that I hope we continue to honor every year. So um, that is, as I said last night to a group of law enforcement officers, a group of first responders of the last resort. And all of us in Homeland Security, in public service, hope that kind of thing never happens. Uh, and that's what we work on your behalf to prevent every single day. So no news is good news, but no news is the work of 240,000 people in my department and in law enforcement and in our US military and in our intelligence community. So um, next time you see somebody in national security, in the military, in law enforcement, please thank them for their public service. Thank you very much.
So thank you for a very interesting and provocative speech. It's left us with a lot to think about. Uh, I should mention for our radio audience, uh, we're thanking Jay Johnson, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. I have a huge stack of questions from the audience and also from a number of press members who are in attendance here. But I'm going to start with one of my own. Uh, a very general question. How would you characterize the terrorist threat today? Domestic, foreign, foreign-inspired? What are, if you could broadly characterize the threat that we face, how would you do so? Evolving to a new phase that includes the threat of the so-called lone wolf. Some people don't like to use that word because it sounds as if we're glamorizing the threat. The evolution to the threat of a homegrown or homeborn even um, actor <clears throat> inspired by something they see in social media or on the internet put out by terrorist organizations overseas. No longer just terrorist directed and equipped and trained from overseas and exported from overseas, but uh, the threat of an act of violence committed by somebody here in the homeland uh, inspired by what they, they read and see, which is harder to detect because such a person could strike with little or no notice. Prior to July, for example, we simply did not have reason to regard Chattanooga, Tennessee as high risk. Uh, we had an attack there which was apparently motivated by something that the individual saw put out from uh, terrorist organizations. As you might imagine, and you touched on it in your speech, one of the areas of great concern is the admission of the Syrian refugees. Yes. There are many questions <clears throat> about that, uh, details of how they will be screened, uh, and so on. But I think that one question is very interesting, which is the following. It's of great concern to me, uh, this is someone who is from Germany, the exodus from the Middle East, mainly to Germany, will perhaps eventually bring about terror attacks and social unrest. Uh, will, if, there is, uh, if this occurs in Germany, will the US help the German government in the event of a, an increased level uh, of terrorism and terror attacks. So I think the question could apply to the US too. Are we accepting a potential threat for the future that might not be apparent at the outset, but years later could mature into a threat? The reality is that when we screen refugees for admission to this country, we do a pretty thorough job. Refugee screening is probably the most thorough vetting that an individual gets who enters this country. And it's also time consuming. We are better at it than we used to be. It involves coordination with more agencies um, in that vetting process, not just DHS, the State Department. And it's a pretty thorough process. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, we want to we want to demonstrate a commitment to helping with the refugee crisis, um, mostly out of Syria. The other thing I'd add to that is folks have to realize, you know, we, have, we also have Central America. 
Uh, and so that number of 330,000 that I mentioned is much lower than last year, but it is still a significant number of apprehensions on our southern border, many of whom will seek asylum when they come to this country. And so <clears throat> there are a lot of resources from USCIS that go to asylum screening of those apprehended in the Southwest. And at the same time, we want to try to meet our commitments, and we will meet our commitments um, overseas, uh, which includes careful vetting. We're also doing a lot by way of um, monetary assistance, humanitarian relief in that part of the world as well. What other questions want uh, ask? What's the level of ISIS infiltration within the refugee, refugee exodus? And also, another question is, how long will you follow? How long will we follow the refugees in this country if one of the gravest threats today is individuals who might become activated or radicalized by <clears throat> exposure to social media? I mean, this could be, again, a threat that should be monitored many years down the road. Well, there is a pretty robust resettlement process um, that you know, state DHS and then ultimately HHS are involved in. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, you don't, once somebody's in this country um, and they haven't committed any crimes, we don't, we don't put ankle bracelets on people who are here lawfully. Um, one of the things that I've been impressed with when I meet with leaders of the Syrian community in this country, and I've done so several times now. The Syrian community, uh, I've been impressed by how supportive they are of refugee admissions, those who are here uh, from Syria. I'll never forget an encounter I had with a Syrian refugee in Houston, Texas. And uh, he, couldn't not, he could not speak English, so he was talking to me at a public session like this. And he said, I'm here because my regime um, terrorized me. And I said, first, my first impulse, I acted on, and I said, welcome to the United States. I am now your regime, and you will never be terrorized by us. <laughs> it's the difference between us and, uh, and other governments. Um, so it was, it was a moving moment for me. This is a broader question. Are we at war with ISIS? Um, Uh, we are in uh, an armed conflict uh, against ISIL, which includes direct action. You're asking me to be a lawyer here like I used to be. Or, or Secretary of, of State. Or... Um, uh, we are in a military engagement against, uh, against ISIL in, in Iraq and Syria. We spoke about the southern border and the fence and so on. What sort of plan do we have for securing our northern border with Canada? Um, continued um, technology, um, surveillance, in the places where we believe we should invest in it. Uh, the northern border has a small fraction of illegal crossings compared to the southern border. Um, so, you know, investing in the places, investing in border security in the places where it is worth investing the taxpayers' money. And one of the things we also should continue to be focused on are legal crossings, 
lawful trade and travel on the northern border, for example. The busiest crossing on the northern border, I believe, is in Detroit, the Ambassador Bridge mm -hmm. in Detroit. And um, they're building another bridge, and they needed a larger customs plaza. Uh, and um, one is going to be built, and we are going to staff it. Uh, because if anybody's ever been to the Ambassador Bridge, um, if you think, if you think you know, a new Bay Bridge needed to be constructed, uh, the Ambassador Bridge is small, narrow. It's one of the busiest ports, if not the busiest port on the northern border. A couple questions about domestic terrorism. Was the Charleston church shooting an act of domestic terrorism in your view? Um, I don't believe we have uh, referred to it as such in the U.S. government. Um, you can call it a lot of things. You can call it a hate crime. You can call it a horrible, horrible incident. Um, and, I mean, it really, in my judgment, showed the character of a lot of good people in South Carolina in response. Um, imagine having your family member murdered in this fashion at a church gathering and looking the assailant in the eye and saying, I forgive you, or God should forgive you. Um, and the response to the murders there. Um, it happens, mass shootings, in my view, terrorist-inspired or inspired by something else happen far, far too often in this country. And my worry is that because they are so frequent, we become numb to them. And we begin, at a certain level, to accept them as business as usual. And we can't do that. Um, we cannot accept that as the status quo. Otherwise, it's going to go on and on and on. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of time, unfortunately, before we're going to have to deal with the next one in some part of this country. And um, I can, I can, we can invest a lot of your money in homeland security. Um, but we also need to address the underlying causes and factors that contribute toward the mass shootings that we face on a regular basis in this country. This one is a bit of a can of worms, I think, but it relates to that situation. Has DHS become involved, or do you see the agency becoming involved with issues of gun control in the U.S. among the civilian population in light of internal homegrown security concerns? Yes. Um, we have mass shooting training um, that we and the FBI, I believe, sponsor uh, in local jurisdictions um, to train people how to respond to mass shootings. And let me give you an example of why that's valuable. There was an attack on the airport in New Orleans in March. A fellow with a, with a machete wandered into the airport. A machete, Molotov cocktails, and bug spray. Wandered into the Louis Armstrong Airport in New Orleans. He walked right up to the TSA screeners, and he started, first he started with the bug spray, and then he took this hatchet out, and he started waving it at different people 
and he keyed on one of our TSOs because of the uniform and started chasing her, chased her through the screening back again. He was about to, he was about, literally about to kill her and this lieutenant from the local sheriff's office stepped forward in like three or four seconds and put this guy down. And when you look at the videos of it, you can see the TSOs all telling people to scatter and the passengers are all scattering. It happened like that. And they told me when I went down there, we had had active shooter training like the week before. So we knew how to respond to this and they responded on impulse, which probably saved some lives. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Drones. Questions about drones. With recent local robberies of drone stores in the San Jose area, is there any concern for coordinated drone terrorist activity? If so, what is being done? Airspace restrictions for drones? If not, does this pose a realistic threat or reasonable event? Multiple, multiple drones with weaponry or explosives? <clears throat> um, yes. Um, drones, low-flying stuff, gyrocopters. There was a gyrocopter that landed on the U.S. Capitol grounds some months ago. I think it was May. And uh, I'll never forget, <clears throat> I was in the office of the mayor of Philadelphia, and somebody whispered in my ear, 
sir, a gyrocopter has landed on the Capitol grounds. And I, my first thing I said was, what's a gyrocopter? <laughs> um, I had this image of the Wright brothers, you know, pedaling. And so um, this fellow apparently was motivated enough to pick up, leave his home in Florida, bring his gyrocopter, um, unbox it in Gettysburg, PA, and fly all the way from Gettysburg, PA, to Washington, D.C. in his gyrocopter at such a low altitude, like 100 feet, that you know, our, our radar is so good that it sees everything, uh, including you know, stray balloons, birds. It sees everything. So this gyrocopter, you, know, you, could, you could say flew in under the radar, but was you know, so low flying and so slow, like a drone, like an unmanned piece of equipment, that <clears throat> we just didn't see it. And so what we've resolved to do in Washington is develop a new protocol for what I call the low and slow stuff. Um, the, the stuff that, for which a response from the ground is appropriate as opposed to a response from the air. And um, that is a coordinated effort in the national capital region that involves DHS, including the Secret Service, the Capitol Police, a lot of agencies, Capitol Police, uh, the Metro Police, uh, and a whole lot of other, uh, Defense Department, and so we're developing a new protocol for that. But <clears throat> drones are definitely a, a present and future concern for public events uh, and, and the like. There have been incidents where somebody attempts to, you know, fly a drone or accidentally flies a drone over prohibited airspace. And we, you know, the Secret Service or others will act pretty quickly to um, stop the drone and, you know, go to the operator and say, hey, get that thing down. I was giving a commencement address in uh, Florida in May. And I look up, there's a, there's a little toy drone buzzing over my head. And uh, fortunately, the Secret Service um, got to the guy pretty quickly. Meanwhile, I'm giving a speech, and I'm at the high point of my speech, and there's this little drone over my head. Um, so, I not an uncommon, I mean, it's something we have to address. Well, and we're not in as sensitive a position as you are, but I think many of us are having the experience with drones. I was at a Rotary Club picnic a while back, and there was a drone mm -hmm. circling above, taking pictures, and very benign, but they're everywhere these days. Uh, and one last question about domestic terrorism. Given the news that Army and other labs have mishandled pathogens like plague and anthrax, has DHS taken any recent steps to beef up protections against domestic biological terrorism? Yes, we have, um, we have a whole um, office devoted to uh, addressing, detecting um, chemical biological threats to the homeland. We work with other agencies in, in doing so. Um, we've got some good people devoted to this, doing a lot of research. Uh, here again is an area where, you know, increased uh, congressional support would, would help as well, but it's something we're focused on and, and devoted to. It's time <clears throat> for our last question, and I want to ask you one that brings together your background and, in fact, your family background as leaders in civil rights. 
uh, with the challenges that you and we all face in the homeland security area. One questioner asked, how do we protect private freedom to the highest standard possible while ensuring national safety and security? And you were kind enough to give me a, a, an embargoed copy of a speech you're gonna give tomorrow in which you talk about uh, the importance for those in public office to uh, protect civil rights as we try to protect ourselves. Could you comment on this question about how we protect private freedoms? Yes. Um, now that I'm in this job, I appreciate this much more vividly. Homeland security, national security, means striking a balance. So I'm going to speak at a conference tomorrow. Um, security and liberty. And I and other national security officials have to be committed to preserving one as much as the other. So <clears throat> I like to tell audiences, I can build you a perfectly safe city. If you give me the resources and the taxpayer dollars and the police force, I can build you a perfectly safe city, but it's gonna be a prison. And I can get you a perfectly safe, risk-free commercial air flight, but you'll be wearing paper smocks, you'll be strapped in your seat, will not be allowed to eat, you will be allowed no luggage um, and no bathroom break. And you will not want to ride on that flight. And I can guarantee you perfect cybersecurity on your computer, but you'll be limited to talking to 10 people with no access to the internet. So in a lot of context, whether it's aviation security, counterterrorism, cybersecurity, Homeland security, national security is a balance between basic physical security and preserving freedom and preserving American values that include right to privacy, freedom of movement, freedom to associate, freedom of speech, and honors our, frankly, and cherishes and celebrates our immigrant heritage and our diversity. Those are things we have, to, we have to preserve in this country. And I'd also like to say that terrorism cannot prevail in any country uh, that refuses to be terrorized. And so <clears throat> very often when we see a new threat stream, the first instinct is to, the first instinct is not always the best one. The first instinct is perhaps to overreact and then you have to think about preserving that special balance between security and the things we, we cherish in a free society. And so that's, that's the struggle, and that's why people in national security have to be sensitive to preserving those values. And it, one is as important as the other. Our thanks to Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, both for your remarks here today and, of course, for your service in protecting us all. I'd like to remind our audience to please stay seated until the Secretary leaves. Thank you so much to our audience here in San Francisco on radio, television, and the Internet. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.